Welcome to Sira, a unique insight into the lives of the most influential women in the Arab world. In Arabic, Sira means her story. And that's exactly what this podcast is about, a series of tales from women in the Middle East. These are real stories, raw and honest, challenging stereotypes and smashing glass ceilings. My name is Amina Tahar, and I'm delighted to have you listening. I have here with me a guest who wears multiple scarves or shelas. She's a molecular biologist, a professor, a social entrepreneur, and a mother, and is recognized as one of the most influential Arab women. Dr. Rana Dejani, welcome to Sira. Ahlan bikum. Oh, that way, in English, right? Sorry. It's good. It's okay. Tell us a little bit more about your background and why you became a scientist. Uh, well, I grew up in a family uh, where uh, my father and mother engaged us all the time in discussions, debates. Uh, so we learned to uh, accept critique and give critique. We learned to ask questions, be curious. There was no red tape for any question. Uh, we uh, we read a lot. We didn't have a television. Uh, and that way we had a lot more time to play with nature, to play with each other. So role model playing. And, and reading. And I think through reading, uh, I was exposed to, to nature and to biology. Uh, and, and that fostered my curiosity to ask questions. And we would spend evenings with my father, who's a physician and scientist, uh, pondering and, and questioning uh, different scientific articles. But your language also in Arabic and English, they're both good. So what's your mother tongue or your first language? Uh, so I think uh, if it's possible to have two first languages, so I sp- I'm bilingual. Uh, I grew up in the United States as a child, but my mother insisted that we spoke Arabic at home and only Arabic at home. And I think that is her persistence and her belief that to develop a healthy child, a human being, that you have to know your language to have a very firm identity, and that's how you can actually go outside to the world. So do you think and dream in Arabic or English? Um, I think both simultaneously, depending on the context. Who were your role models when um, you were growing up? Well, first, uh, both parents, my mother and my father. Uh, My father read a lot, and so did my mother, to me and amongst each other. We would all sit together as a family and read out loud. Uh, and being very active in the community, taking care of the community, not just necessarily in the form of a job in, on one hand, but also in the form of creating uh, programs to help uh, address the challenges in our uh, environment around us. So they were both uh, my role models. And I think also uh, growing up, sometimes we didn't have the role models that we wanted, so we created those role models in our own self, learning uh, a little bit of everything from everybody. So everybody has a quality or an action that I learned from. Uh, so it's not just one role model. Every experience and every human being uh, has something to teach others. That's a very smart answer. I want to go a little bit uh, and talk about Islam and science. And that's a big thing for you. It's kind of one of your purposes. Um, what drove you to that? I grew up in a family, in an atmosphere, in, in an environment where Islam, Islamic philosophy was part and parcel of everything we did. And, and that's what guided me to form how I look at Islam and how it forms me and shapes me. And, and, and the philosophy that I grew up on is that uh, Islam is about celebrating the mind. 
and the brain and and encouraging and fostering curiosity and asking questions and i th- and i drew that and that's what really opened the whole door of uh, of wanting to pursue knowledge pursue the truth uh, trying to understand nature around us and and because uh, of that i wanted to become a scientist um even later on when i when i became a scientist i actually never saw any uh, uh, contradiction between religion and Islam. To me, they came together, and actually, that's why. Uh, and if we look at the past history, uh, all science has flourished, and many of the discoveries that we see today are actually standing on the shoulders of scientists from the Islamic civilization, both in medicine and chemistry and in physics, because they understood the relationship between the philosophy of Islam and using uh, our brains and putting them to action. What's your favorite verse in the Quran? Oh, that's a beautiful question. Um, the, my favorite verse, all right, and because we're talking about science and curiosity, uh, is uh, the whole section of when Abraham was asking Allah about, أَرِنِي كَيْفَ تُحْيِي الْمَوْتَ قَالَ بَلَى وَلَكِنْ لِيَطْمَئِنَّ قَلْبِي Which, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, when uh, Abraham uh, asks God, please show me how can you bring people back to life? And God doesn't tell him that's a a wrong question or a not allowed question. He actually uh, encourages him and shows him the evidence. And he shows him uh, step by step how he should take a bird and then cut it up and put it on different pieces of a mountain and then call it all together. This is beautiful. This is an invitation to ask any question that occurs to you. There's no red tape. And it's also about providing evidence and pursuing knowledge uh, uh, from, from nature around you. God doesn't tell him you can't ask that question. This is Abraham asking God, right? Not me asking another human being. And he was allowed and he was encouraged to ask. And the response was, I will show you. I will give you evidence, which tells us that we need to, when we ask, we need to seek the evidence. I can see that. I can feel it. And what makes your methods and, and teaching about science and evolution unique? When I teach biology and science, of course, evolution is a fundamental principle of biology. We can only understand nature in the framework of evolution, how species evolved over uh, long periods of time. And when I teach it to my students, it's not to uh, create controversy or a contradiction. It's actually to help them think on their own and come up with their own conclusions of what is right and what is wrong. Uh, and so when I teach, I tell them, you know, it really doesn't matter if we agree or disagree with evolution or any biological concept for that matter. What matters is for you to think critically and to develop those critical and analytical skills and use them in every, your everyday life. So in the end of the day, if at the end of this course, for example, uh, you still uh, 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 ha- have an opinion that is different from mine, that's fine. So long as you can show me the evidence that led you to that conclusion. Uh, so it's all teaching science is about teaching how to be critical. And those are the skills we need, especially going into the 21st century to solve the challenges we are facing today. And, and the education system is no longer about knowledge and content because you can get that on the Internet. It's all about developing the skills and the tools to be able to deal with the unknown, which is the future. Do we instill that sense of fire and passion for um, young girls in the Arab world when it comes to STEM? Absolutely. I'm very proud to say that girls 
in the Arab world are doing great in STEM and their numbers are much more than boys to the extent maybe we need a quota the other way around. But people don't talk about this. So uh, whether at school, girls are doing much better than boys. Uh, whether at universities, we have more girls, uh, young women in universities in the STEM fields, much more than boys, 60 and even 70% in certain fields. So we're doing a lot of good things. I think what's lacking is to study what we're doing, to understand what we are doing right in that context so that other countries and other regions in the world, like the U.S. and Europe, can learn from us to increase their numbers of girls and STEM because they have a challenge that we don't have. Not that we don't have our own challenges, we do, but that's in a different space, in a different category. So speaking of uh, things that we don't talk about much or we don't shed the light on is... Um your husband left his work so you can continue and pursue your education. Um, I find that fascinating. Share with us more about this story. So actually, I grew up wanting to be a scientist, right? And uh, I did my bachelor's and master's in biology. There was no PhD program in Jordan. Um, I applied to go uh, abroad, and I was accepted at the University of Cambridge in England, but I couldn't go because I wasn't able to financially support myself. So what do you do when you have a master's in biology? You become a school teacher. Uh, so I became a school teacher and I got married and had four kids. Then my husband saw an ad in the newspaper for a scholarship from the Fulbright uh, program. And he said, Rana, you always wanted to be a scientist. This is your chance. So I actually took all the exams and um, I was set up for an interview. And they, they called me up. They said my interview was the day I was due to deliver my, my daughter. And I said, but that's my due date. And they said, oh, if you have your baby, we'll do it from your bedside. Actually, I didn't have Sarah, my baby. I went to the interview fully pregnant. I made the interview. And then next day I had Sarah. And then a week after, they called me and said, I got the scholarship. And at that point, what are we going to do? You know, this is a family of four kids. Uh, my family is as important as my dream of being a scientist and doing this PhD. So my husband, who was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, resigned so that he could support me in achieving my dream. And we would keep the family as one unit because family is very important. And we moved all of us to the States uh, for me to pursue my PhD. And actually, uh, he's a great guy. He's been my support, my mentor, my friend in every stage of my life. But I don't think he's the only one. I think there are a lot of great men out there, but we don't tell their stories. And we need to be more vocal and write about uh, the, the successful woman we have and the, the men who support them. I just got goosebumps listening uh, to that. Do you feel, um, how are you as a mother to uh, your four kids? And, and tell us a little bit more about uh, your, your family. So um, I consider my role uh, as a parent, as a mother, the most important role I can ever play in my life. And that's why when I, I, when I introduce myself, usually I say, I'm a mother. Uh, and, and the reason is because I am helping produce the next generation, right? To make sure that this next generation is healthy, not just in body, but in mind, to make a difference going forward. Uh, so how I do that is, well, I read to my kids all the time. Uh, and even now when they're all grown up, we still read together and share different passages of, of uh, writers who have inspired us. But I also engage them in everything I do. So when I was doing my PhD, they would spend hours with me in the lab. And, and I would share with them my data, my, my, my theories, and they would give me what they thought about the data. You know, kids are really wise and really smart. Uh, and they keep you, you know, uh, alive. They keep you focused on your purpose. Uh, and so when I succeeded, 
it wasn't uh, uh, it wasn't me succeeding alone. It was all of us succeeding together. And this is important to engage with our families as we do things, so that you don't separate your personal life from your professional life. It's all a holistic approach together. And that way you become a role model for your kids growing up, both male and female, uh, of what is a successful woman? What does success mean? And to you, what does success look like and mean? And do you have enough me time? When you are, uh, when you have identified your passion and you follow it, uh, work becomes play. And you're having fun 24 hours a day. <laughs> and when you're having fun, you're much happier. So that's my definition of success. But how you achieve it differs from person to another because we are different. We are different in our DNA. We are different in our experiences. And therefore, how we look, perceive success will be different. For me, it's about pursuing science, helping other people around me through the my program of encouraging children to read for fun. Uh, and to me, as I pursue these passions, is actually I am uh, satisfying my own curiosity and taking care of myself in that way. You've also published a book yes. called Five Scarves. Um, and it discusses a lot about gender, race, religion, science. And in the book, you make a case on radical transformation. Um, so actually, my my book came uh, as a result uh, of an incident that happened. So uh, when uh, a few years ago, I got an email uh, from a British organization uh, uh, informing me that I have been chosen as one of 20 most influential female scientists in the Islamic world. That's 1.6 billion people. And I thought, wow, I mean, thank you. That's an honor, but a huge responsibility at the same time. And they had given each one of us a title. So there was the mathematician, cardiologist, and I was scrolling down to see what title they had given me since I do so many things. And the title they had given me was the Islamic feminist. And I said, no, you can't do that. Because when you say Islamic, all the Western world looks at you skeptical. And when you say feminist, all the Eastern world looks at you skeptical. So I thought that way, I, you know, I end up with no, nobody really liking what I'm doing. And I emailed them and I said, could you change it? And they said, no, the way I, what I write about, what I, my actions um, to, in their mind uh, speaks to, to such a title. So I thought, okay. I'm going to redefine that. I'm going to own it. So I kind of embarked on a journey of trying to redefine success on my own terms. And that's why I wrote the book uh, when I was a, a scholar at Harvard. Uh, and so the book goes through a biography of my own life as an exemplar. And I discuss and challenge what is the framework of success, right? Uh, all around us, in the world, we hear the rhetoric of how can we get more women into the workplace. Uh, and, and I wanted to approach that from a scientific point of view as a scientist. Uh, and, and, and so I was looking, what are the different hypotheses and whether there is evidence to support those hypotheses? So the first hypothesis that everybody comes up with when they're talking about women in the workplace is that women are not educated enough or they don't have enough skills. But when I look at the Arab world, for example, in the STEM field, I know that girls and women have the education, have the skills. So it's not about lack of education. And actually, maybe the West can learn from us from this example. Then the other hypothesis that's put forward is that, oh, the workplace itself is not supportive of women. Uh, and many companies have introduced measures uh, to, to help that. So we have nurseries, we have flexible time, or women leave early. Uh, but first of all, not all companies are doing that. So I was at the UN in Vienna last year, and my uh, colleague of mine, who's a mathematician scientist, uh, had her baby, and there was no place for her to nurse her baby except in the bathroom. And this is the UN, right? The pinnacle of human rights. 
Um, and even after companies have introduced measures, we know from a report from McKinsey that that did not increase the numbers of women in the workplace. So to me, as a scientist, that means there's something else going on, right? That And maybe, you know, as a scientist, if you keep asking the same question and you hit a wall, maybe you're asking the wrong question. Uh, so it's about taking a step back and reassessing the whole situation. And I think the question should be, rather than asking, how can we get more women into the workplace? The question should be, what do women really want? Because the workplace, as we know it today, was designed by men for men. And when women entered the workplace in the past century, uh, they didn't say, wait a minute, we may be different, at least biologically, right? Uh, I have a uterus, therefore I will be pregnant, and a man doesn't. Although some people will tell me, no, men will be pregnant at some point. And I say, okay, when that happens, <laughs> we'll discuss it. Uh, and I, ha I nurse a child, and men don't. So just for those two biological differences, I would assume that the framework of, of success and of the workplace should be different. But apparently, it is not. So what I propose is to uh, uh, that women, because they're different, at least in those two aspects, uh, that the definition of success will be different and that we will have a kaleidoscope, a spectrum of what success looks like that varies as much as our DNA varies. So this is not just about gender. It's also about different minorities and different groups, uh, each one of them finding out what success is and putting a monetary value on that. And, and do you feel, uh, just touching on that point, is is it for women both in the East and West? Because we've heard you say before that the problems of Western women are different to uh, the ones faced by the women in the Arab world. Yes, I, we have uh, certain problems are different, like I said, uh, in terms of education and skills. Women in the uh, in the uh, Arab world uh, ha have higher numbers in STEM compared to the West. However, when we look at the level of the workforce, we're more or less the same in, this, in challenges. And that's why this framework of work that was designed by men for men is across the board the same, whether you're talking about India or the Arab world or, or the West. Uh, so those are the similar challenges across the board. And, th and therefore, what we can do about them again, is challenging that framework and saying, can we need a new framework? We don't all want to be measured with the same stick, right? It's like that cartoon where a guy is asking every kind of animal to be able to climb a tree. Well, a fish can't climb a tree, but that doesn't make the fish less capable or less equipped. You're just asking the wrong question. And that's what I want to challenge, that women all over the world should be uh, saying how they want to define success according to their own terms. And not just women, it's also about every human being. We are different. Uh, some men want to do something different, but they can't because there's a framework. There's a certain definition of what is success. So it's about celebrating diversity and, and, and coming up with new uh, forms of success. And if we go back to your book, what quote or phrase do you want people to remember five scarves? the title, Doing the Impossible. If we can reverse cell fate, why can't we redefine success? What do you think radical transformation means in the Arab world? That's a great question. Uh, and to me, it's about a number of things. One, that we need to make sure that our future young generation is very proud of who they are as an identity. Especially in the face of globalization, they have to, um, how do they maintain a balance a harmony of maintaining who they are while learning from others around them and, and synthesizing something beautiful and important for the future. This is radical because people are either stuck in the past 
or just uh, are, have gone over to the other side. So it's about that balance. And the way to do that is, well, not just having a good education. It's about pursuing knowledge in all sectors. In the Arab world, we only pursue knowledge in the STEM field. We're really good at that. All our smart kids, we, they become engineers and doctors, and, and very few go into the humanities. We need writers. We need journalists. We need uh, historians. We need people who are social scientists, anthropologists, who can study us, understand how we function, how the culture and society works, so that we can learn how to uh, solve our challenges. And maybe... And why not? We can actually start exporting ideas and thought to the whole world because the world is facing a crisis of humanity, of purpose, of who we are, why are we alive? We may have a solution, but we need researchers and scientists from the humanities. I think the radical transformation should be to encourage more of the humanities uh, and philosophy into our education system so that our uh, citizens can grow up to be not just um, good in the left part of their brain, but also on the right part of their brain, both sides, because we need both to go forward. So you've told us more of what the Arab world needs more. What do we need less? What, oh, wow. Okay, flip it. Uh, it means what is it that we are proud of that we already have achieved, right? I am always positive. <laughs> we always should be, I'm very optimistic. My husband says, you know, people say uh, glass half full. My husband says, Rana seizes an ocean in a drop of water. Nice. Yeah, and that's what we need. We need to be very positive and optimistic. We'll which interview is a, you both next time. <laughs> so we hold a lot of importance and respect for, for basic science and the hard uh, sciences like engineering and medicine. We have a lot of that. We need, we, don't, we need less of that. But on a personal level, thank you yeah. for appreciating what we no, do. No, you are important. <laughs> you need, if we don't have people to, you know what? If we don't have writers, and I'm serious, somebody will write about us. And we can't control what they're going to write about us. So we owe it to the future generation for us to write so they know who we are, what we are, and help them carry them forward with proud and identity. And these are the words of Edward Said, asking people to write, to express themselves, to talk about who they are. Uh, so we owe it. We owe it to the future generation. Your energy is contagious. It's brilliant. Like I see you, I see sunshine, I see warm energy and passion and, and so much positivity. I also want to talk about something that we don't talk much about it in the Arab world and in entrepreneurship in uh, particular is failures. So is there anything that, that you went through, um, be it, you know, as a, as a professor, as a mother, or even as a child, is there anything that you would like to share with us about failure? Uh, we all, as we go through our lives and our careers, uh, make different choices, and they may not seem to be the best choices at that time right? It's about what we learn from those choices going forward. So I really don't like to call them failures. I like to call them lessons. What have I learned that I can take forward? What is a, way, a different way of doing things? Um, and, and of course, that's the only way we learn. Uh, the way we have evolved, the way our brain works, is that we encounter different experiences and we learn from those experiences, building upon them and going forward. Nobody is born knowing everything. So uh, failing, if you want to call it that, I like, I call it learning a lesson, is part of our journey. And we need to celebrate it and talk about it and share it so that we can help others. And I tell people, you know, it's okay to make a mistake. 
Just don't make the same mistake twice. Just make a new mistake because that's the only way we can learn. Uh, so some of the challenges that, for example, I faced um, is, uh, is that for, I wanted to be a scientist and I didn't get a chance to like later, which uh, to me, retrospectively, everything um, has a purpose. And it's about taking advantage of what you have at the moment and making the most of it learning from it and moving forward. So I think for me, when I became a school teacher for 10 years and not a scientist, that was so important uh, now because now I understood how teachers work, what are their challenges, what parents face, what do kids face. Without that experience, I wouldn't have been able to create We Love Reading. I wouldn't have been a better teacher at the university. So although may maybe somebody would have called that a failure, to me, retrospectively, that was a huge learning experience. Or, for example, in We Love Reading, I started it in my own neighborhood. I was reading aloud to the kids for three years. Um, and every time I would tell somebody to do what I was doing, uh, you know, they'd just pat me on the back and tell me, good job. But those three years were the, also the most important because I learned through trial and error uh, to create a very simple program, like a, a bare framework that allowed it to spread throughout the world. Uh, so again, somebody could call that a failure. To me, it was a, uh, an experience what I, uh, that I learned from. I want to ask you some personal questions. Mm -hmm. So not head, but heart. What do you uh, prefer, Cambridge, Harvard, or Yale? Jordan. Nice. <laughs> Represent. Because, <laughs> no, because I feel I make a much more impactful uh, change in Jordan than anywhere else. What's on your screensaver, your phone screensaver? Oh, nothing. <laughs> no background? I mean, the tr the standard. I didn't change it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's refreshing for a change. <laughs> um, what's next for you in 2020 and beyond? I mean, I have those short-term goals. I'm writing actually two books now, uh, a sequel for The Five Scarves. And then this is about talking about how women are perceived in different cultures around the world. Uh, indigenous Indians in South America, uh, African tribes in, in Western Africa, um, in Bulgaria and Southern Europe, and how they've been affected by the Islamic civilization, uh, women in India and then in China. Uh, so, And that will contain a lot of the critique I got on my first book. So if you've read my first book, please send me a critique. It. You may be in my next book. Um, and the other book is about uh, critical thinking and pedagogy. So talking about how we can educate the next uh, generation. But um, uh, on the long term, I look forward to keep on pursuing science and making discoveries till the last minute of my life because uh, it's, a, it's a journey that, I will, that never ends, seeking of the truth, and helping people around me, uh, spreading a wheel of reading, uh, trying to reach every child in every neighborhood because I believe it's a crime for a child to grow up not falling in love with reading. Because through reading, they discover their inner potential and their outer potential. Uh, and, and so my, my dream is to reach every child in every neighborhood. It's a great professional outlook. When is your next holiday? Oh, uh, this is my holiday, right? <laughs> <laughs> I play all the time. <laughs> I don't work. I get a kick and thrill of, of uh, understanding science and, and engaging with people and helping people. And, and I feel uh, that's my uh, like calling. Uh, and from a Muslim perspective, I think this is al-ibadah. This is true worship, is, is when you're seeking the truth, whether through exploring molecules and cells or uh, helping people uh, find their passion and what they want. Is there anything uh, you would like to share um, to our listeners? Uh, 
Yeah, so uh, from a scientific point of view, every human being is different. Their DNA is different. Even identical twins uh, have different experiences. So their epigenetics is different. And therefore, they have something to give to the world. Uh, and, and they should. They owe it to the world to write about their experiences, to make a difference in the world around them. If anybody tells them, uh, who do you think they are? You know, what is the ocean but millions and millions of drops? Uh, so I ask everybody, uh, each one, to look around you, find something that bothers you, and try to find a solution for it that you can make. And uh, do not belittle uh, any deed you do, which is the Prophet Muhammad saying. Uh, it's like, it's the butterfly effect. It's the chaos theory in physics. When a butterfly flutters its wings in China, it moves the uh, air like a centimeter. There's a hurricane in the Atlantic. So there will be a change and an impact from what you do sometime in the future, someplace in the world. And, and all it takes is for you to start and to try. And that was Dr. Rana Dejani on Sira. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Sira on your favorite podcast app and follow us on thenational.ae. Also, please do leave a review to let us know what you think. This podcast was produced by Aisha Khan, Erika Al-Qarshi, and Arthur Edison. I have been your host, Amina Tahar. Shukran.